Brothers and sisters, let us open in God's Word to Revelation. A revelation, or if you have a copy of your Revelation notebook, you can feel free to open that as well to take some notes this morning. But uh, while you're turning there, what's the last time you received a letter in the mail? Now, I'm not talking about a form letter, something that's been mass mailed out to a bunch of different people. I mean a personal letter that someone took the time to write to you. Now, the truth is, I can't think of the last time I've received a personal letter in the mail. It's become all too rare today, actually, what, with uh, email. There's generally no need to send a type the time and write a letter and send it in the mail. Um, and uh, even when emails become too long, we have text messaging where we can communicate with one another. So technology has really, in many ways, left the idea of letter writing in the dust. It's largely behind us. And yet, I'm not sure we always have recognized the cost of no longer receiving letters. Nothing really matches a thoughtful letter, does it? And when you receive a heartfelt thoughtful letter what often happens but you read it over and over and over again as you reflect upon the words that someone cared enough to write to you there's another way we can think about letters especially in a day when letters would have been much more common for people to write see if you really want to get to know someone it's helpful to read a number of their letters. Because as you do, what will you pick up on? Common thoughts they often have. Common themes that they like to write about. Common concerns that they have as they write. And common cares that come through in what they have to say. It's why there are books that are filled with entire collections of letters that you can buy that are written by someone important or someone famous. So, for example, a well-known book that was written by a Christian many years ago is simply called The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. And this book is still in print over 350 years after Rutherford wrote all of these letters. And yet, these letters still provide encouragement and edification for pastors and for Christians today. And I encourage you, if you have some time, to read some of his letters. But what happens as you seek to study Rutherford's letters is you learn about the heart of Samuel Rutherford. You learn about the concerns of Samuel Rutherford and how he sought to encourage those who he's writing to with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, here in the book of Revelation, we have read together and studied together seven letters from Christ himself to these churches in Asia Minor. And so this morning, we're going to do something a little different, that because we're going to pull back and consider all of these letters together so that we can see more of Christ and 
his word and what he had to speak to all of these churches so we can learn from them today. And so as we do so, brothers and sisters, let us again go before our Lord in prayer. Father, we come to our time together in this service that you have promised to speak to us as your word is preached. So may we recognize this time for what it is, a holy opportunity to hear your voice. Father, as your humble servant, please remove me and any attention that I may draw from, from keeping your people from focusing on you. And may our full attention be turned to the preaching of your word. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will also be at work as your word is proclaimed, that we will see through your spirit the glory of Christ and the goodness of Christ so that we will be in awe of Christ as our Savior and Lord. May we then receive encouragement from your word this morning as sinners who have been saved by grace. That's why we pray and ask for all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if I'm to summarize what we learn from these seven letters, it would be this, that Christ's letters reveal how to overcome life in the sinful world. Christ's letters reveal how to overcome this sinful world. And as I was studying these letters, I came up with 15 observations from these letters. Now, that's a lot. And I realize we have a limited time here together this morning, but how deeply we can mine the truths of God's Word. And so we see this through 15 observations that, I, that I'm going to make, and they're, I've organized them then into three categories, all right? So again, it's a little bit of a different message, but there's three categories with 15 observations that we find through these letters. And the first category is our call to live through Christ's love. Live through Christ's love. Our second, the second category of observations then is to live with Christ's church. Live with Christ's church. And then finally, the third category is to live for Christ's glory. Live for Christ's glory. So let's begin with this first category then of observations, to live through Christ's love. And the first observation is this that Christ saves us by His grace. Christ is the one who saves us by His grace. Now, the Apostle John here, as he starts writing this prophetic book of symbolic visions, he sends these churches greetings as the book opens. And the, this greeting is then rooted in the grace of our Trinitarian God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But 
If you look there in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, you can listen again to how Christ is described. We read that he is that this comes from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And listen, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is Christ who loved us and washed our sins with his own blood. This is the very gospel that has been proclaimed to us as those who believe in Jesus and trust in his sacrifice for us, that while we deserve God's very judgment of condemnation for our sin, Christ takes our place by hanging on the cross where the wrath of God was poured out for him or on him as our substitute. He loved us so much that he took our place. And so he saves us from the wrath of God and from the eternal punishment we deserve in hell through his shedding of blood for us to be washed clean. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, that Christ saves us by His grace. And you will be saved by coming to Christ and believing in Christ by trusting in Him and turning away from your sins. Believe on Christ and be saved. This is the very message that we will see gives us confidence and hope as Christians. Because in Christ, we are reconciled with God and we are appointed or, or adopted as his children, which is why God is our father and we are his blood-bought children through Christ who has saved us by his grace. So brothers and sisters, when we are saved by his grace, then Christ reveals himself to us for our encouragement here in the book of Revelation and all of Scripture. Here then we receive these words of encouragement from Christ as we struggle and suffer in this world. But as we consider the letters then, what we find in each of the seven letters is that Christ begins by reminding these churches of who he is. He has, at the beginning of Revelation, described himself from the opening vision of his glory, but before Christ even speaks to them, he says to them who he 
is. Over and over again, then, what do these letters remind us? But that they expose the sinful tendency we all have to forget Christ as we live in this world. Which is why we need to be reminded of who He is and what He's done for us. And that's how Christ begins each of these letters to His churches. But this brings us to the second observation of the, from these letters, that Christ is present with His churches. You see, not only has Christ saved us, but He continues to be present among us. I mean, again, we can look at the opening vision of Christ, Revelation 1, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Read John saying, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, what do these seven lampstands represent? Well, you can look down to verse 20, where we read, The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So we have Christ, who is the Son of Man, and He is there walking in the midst of these seven churches. Which means all seven of these churches, whatever condition they were in, were not alone. But Christ is there with them. And so he writes to the angels of each of these churches as those who gather together in his presence to hear his words read. And so in the very first of Christ's letters, to the church of Ephesus there at the beginning of chapter 2, Christ describes himself in verse 1 as the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, frankly, as we come to read these letters and hear more about these churches from the letters, frankly, we may be surprised that Christ hasn't left them. Right? These churches are generally not healthy. But His love is greater than our sin, which is why He remains present even as He warns them of their sin. And this means, brothers and sisters, that Christ is present with our church too. That in the midst of all of our weaknesses, in the midst of all of our struggles with sin, Christ is with us. So we come then to the third observation we find through these letters, that Christ knows our works. These are the first words from Christ to these churches in each of his, these letters. You can look for yourself in the church of Ephesus, two, chapter 2, verse 2, the church of Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9, the church in Pergamos, chapter 2, verse 13, the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8, and the church of the Laodiceans in chapter 3, verse 15. What does he say to all of them? I know your works. Christ knows all that we have done both the good and the bad. Which is why we read in these letters of the church's faithful works and of their unfaithful works. 
See, the truth is we can't hide our works from Christ. Because He knows our desires. He knows our thoughts. And He knows our actions. But He's also at work to change us and transform us into His image. Which is why He writes these letters to His churches. So no matter how hard things have gotten, or no matter how far they have strayed, Christ calls them to return to Him through repentance and faith. You see then how our salvation does not depend on our works, but on His grace. And yet His grace is at work in our lives so that we will become more like our Savior, zealous for good works. Again, as we've so often heard, we are not saved by our works, but by Christ's grace. Yet we are saved by Christ's grace so that we will do good works out of gratitude for the love that we have freely received by grace in Jesus Christ. Well, this brings us then to the fourth observation that we can find through these letters, that Christ reveals his heart for sinners. We've already seen that Christ is present with these churches. And so his seven letters then are testimonies of his love for them. You see, he doesn't leave them to face the consequences of their sins alone. But he speaks to them in love so that they will repent and be restored in their communion with him. You see, true love doesn't avoid or deny confrontation when someone is harming themselves or others. But out of our love for them, sins must be challenged and confronted and corrected. Christ then, through these letters, out of his love for these churches, is seen throughout the letters, but it's most clearly seen in his final letter to the church of the Laodiceans. Do you remember what Christ says then? You can look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 again. What are these words from Christ? He says to them, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. What love Christ has for his people. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This is the truth that Paul so well summarizes in Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. Do you see then how Christ's heart of love is seen through his seven letters? That he loves all those for whom he died and will not let us forsake him in our sin. So even when they are hard words and stinging words and challenging words, Christ's love is found among them. Well, now we come to the fifth observation. Because Christ loves us, Christ promises us glorious blessings when he returns. I mean, if you want to be overwhelmed by Christ's love for us, 
simply read the end of each letter. Let, let, let's do so together. You can be in chapter 2, verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Chapter 2, verses 26 to 28. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Or chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you hear Christ's words then through these promises? What does he say? I will give. I will give. I will give. And so in these letters, there are 12 promised blessings that Christ's people will receive when he returns. What else can I say? That Christ will give us an abundance of blessings to enjoy in his presence forever. Do you see then, brothers and sisters, how we are to live through Christ's love? This brings us to the second category of observations I'm making. We are also to live with Christ's church. Let's come to our sixth observation. I think it's really important for us to remember this. That churches in the New Testament are not pure or perfect. Now there are sometimes you'll hear Christians saying something like, we need to get back to the New Testament church. And for many Christians... They seem to think the golden age of the church was when the apostles were living. But what does this really mean? What New Testament church do they want to join? I mean, consider these seven churches. The church of Ephesus had left their first love. The church in Smyrna suffered under tribulation and poverty, facing prison and even death for their faith. The church in Pergamos tolerated false teachers and idolatry and immorality. The church in Thyatira also was seduced in idolatry and immorality through a false prophetess. The church in Sardis, Jesus says, was spiritually dead. 
The church of Philadelphia was also enduring persecution, and the church of the Laodiceans were lukewarm in their riches and wealth, comfortable in this world, and not knowing they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the truth is, no New Testament church is pristine. These early years were not a golden age in church history. And these churches are warned of apostasy, of leaving their faith behind and coming under God's judgment for their sin. Why is this? Well, it's because Christ's churches are filled with sinners. And I hate to break it to you, but Christ's churches are led by sinners. And so in the midst of all of our sin, Christ's churches are also opposed by the world and by Satan. Which is why Christ's churches are in all different stages of being messed up. And it means that the only one who can and will uphold us is Christ and Christ alone. Well, that brings us then to our seventh observation. Our seventh observation that churches have different strengths and weaknesses. See, through these letters, we see Christ commending churches for their faithfulness and warning them of their unfaithfulness. And sometimes they're the very opposite. For example, the church of Ephesus upholds doctrinal truth and rejects false teachers, but they've left their first love towards God and one another. Then think of the church of Thyatira. They're commended for their love but they allowed doctrinal error and false teaching to seduce them. Or you consider the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia that have endured political and religious persecution for their faith in Christ, while the churches of Sardis and Laodicea have been free from persecution, but are struggling with empty religious observances and comfort in this world. Do you see then how churches have different strengths and weaknesses? But what I find is that we are quick to blame others when they are weak, when we are strong. But this leaves us blind to our own weaknesses. And frankly, it fosters a pride in our own tribe, that we are the faithful Reformed Baptists, rather than giving us a humility, ready to accept our own failures and sins. See, the truth is we all have our struggles as sinners who live in this world. And Christ's words are relevant to all of us because he knows where we are. And he is the one at work to help us become a glorious church that is holy and without blemish. Well, consider then the eighth observation. That churches should expect persecution. You know, when John began writing, he said back in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Which means John here identifies with them by referring to the tribulation that he faced together with these seven churches. And in the letters themselves, do you notice the only two without serious problems were the two that were under severe persecution. The 
churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two that aren't warned of their sins, but they are also the two that are suffering under the most intense of persecution. Which again reminds me of Jesus' words that John himself then recorded in his gospel. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. See, Christ's churches are called to follow in his footsteps, which means the world hates us as it hated him. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, you, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. Brothers and sisters, we should expect persecution. But in many ways... Christ has blessed our church by giving us the freedom to worship him in our nation. And so as the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And we're thankful to freely worship Christ today. Yet there are two things we should keep in mind. First, this freedom can lull our souls to sleep as we become comfortable in this world and as we compromise our faith in order to maintain peace in this world. As we've seen, this is what happened to the churches in Sardis and the church of the Laodiceans. How are they described? They were spiritually dead or deceived. They may have had a name and reputation, uh, great riches and wealth. Yet their souls were sick and even dead. So there's that danger of the freedom we have. In becoming so comfortable in the world, there's no reason for us to be persecuted. But there's also a second reality that we must recognize, and that's we should not be surprised when persecution comes. Because this world is not our home. And it will oppose us as we live lives of faithful service to Christ, our Savior and Lord. Which then brings us to our ninth observation. That churches face enemies outside the church and within the church. Let's quickly work through these letters again. The church of Ephesus tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The church in Smyrna suffered under tribulation and poverty from those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. The church in Pergamos dwelled where Satan's throne is and have those holding to the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The church in Thyatira has been seduced by Jezebel, a prophetess. The church in Sardis has defiled their garments in sin by not keeping watch over their souls. The church of Philadelphia also suffers under the Jews who belong to the synagogue of Satan. And the church of the Laodiceans have been led astray and away from Christ in their love for money and their prideful self-reliance. 
So there is political and religious opposition and oppression that comes against these churches from the outside. But then there is also seduction and false teaching and immorality with the sinful temptation to worldliness from within. Do you see then that we should not neglect either danger? Sometimes we may be only concerned with the world out there while not being concerned with the temptations in here. And so we have enemies both outside of the church and within the church. So now we come to our 10th observation. The churches need to hear from Christ who speaks to us through his word. You see, with all of these challenges, what we need most is Christ's gospel encouragement and his guiding wisdom. Imagine for a moment being a member of one of these churches in the midst of everything they're going through. And you gather together then on the Lord's Day, like we are today, to worship. Well, your pastor comes before the church and he announces that you have received a book from the Apostle John that has been delivered to your church. So he opens this book and begins reading this revelation of Christ. And as he reads, your pastor comes to a letter from Christ that is written specifically to your church. How would you be feeling? Well, I couldn't wait to hear from this letter from Christ. And while his rebukes may sting, I also hear of Christ's care for us and of his promises to us. And then as Revelation continues to be read through all 22 chapters, I find such a great encouragement and hope in the midst of the struggles and suffering that we're facing as a church. Brothers and sisters, this is why God has recorded all of these words of Scripture from the apostles and prophets. And this is why he has preserved his word for us. Which is why we need to hear from God's word and why we are a people that centers all we do on the word of God. It's why the preaching of the word of God is the very apex of our church's worship. It's why the word of God forms the very basis of our times of instruction. It's why... The word of God is encouraged in our families as we gather in our homes for worship. Why the word of God is seen as such an important aspect of our lives as we individually live before the Lord, as we read and meditate and study and memorize the word of God. So not only do we live through Christ's love, but we also live with Christ's church. This brings us to the third category of observations that I'm making through these letters this morning, that we live for Christ's glory. So what's the 11th observation? 
Brothers and sisters, we will overcome this corrupt world through faith and repentance. How are we to live our lives? Through faith and repentance. While the Christian life begins with faith in Christ and repentance for our sin, it is also sustained with our faith in Christ and repentance of our sin. So as Christians, we never move past faith and repentance, but they are a lifestyle that we continue to practice as we live in this world. Again, let's look at these letters. Chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful until death. Chapter 2, verse 16, repent. Chapter 2, verse 22, unless they repent of their deeds. Chapter 2, verse 25, behold fast what you have till I come. Chapter 3, verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Chapter 3, verse 11, hold fast what you have. Chapter 3, verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. Do you recognize the importance of holding on to Christ by faith and repenting of your sins? These commands of Christ are always given in these letters before his promises to overcome. Why? Because we will overcome this corrupt world through our faith and repentance. This brings us to our twelfth observation, that we must persevere through temptations, trials, and tribulation. In many ways, these three T's summarize the Christian life. Because our sinful flesh is tempted by this world, whether in our relationships, whether in our social standing, whether in our money or possessions. And we find all of these temptations present in Christ's letters. There's a lack of discernment due to close relationships, which leads to compromise in these churches. There's a strong desire to fit into the culture, which corrupts the faith, as we see in these letters. And there's a lure of enjoyment through pursuing the pleasures of this world in these letters. Not only are there temptations, but there's also trials and tribulations which come upon us. But God's purpose in these is also revealed in Christ's letter to the church in Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 10. Why we face these trials and tribulations? Christ says, that you may be tested. That you may be tested. You see, over and over again, Christ calls us to persevere through these trials and tribulation. That's why Christ commends the church in, of Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience. Or as we read of the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. Or the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere. So we are commanded to persevere in the faith. Through the temptations, trials, and tribulation. And this is why Christ uses this language of overcoming in each letter. Because he wants his churches to overcome the hardships of life. 
in obedience to his word. And because he has saved us by his blood, we are commanded to faithfulness through our struggles and suffering in life. Well, now we're to observation 13. The 13th observation is that we are in a spiritual war. Now, this truth is easy for us to overlook, yet it is a prominent feature in these letters. Have you noticed how often Satan is mentioned in them? He says the, the Jews opposing them belong to the synagogue of Satan in, both, in chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9. He says that the devil is about to throw some of them into prison in chapter 2, verse 10. He speaks of the city of Pergamos and its government as Satan's throne and where Satan dwells in chapter 2, verse 13. And he says those who are not following false teachers and their doctrine that they have not known the depths of Satan in chapter 2, verse 24. You see, these letters remind me of the warning the apostle Peter gave in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, where he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we live in a spiritual war, which is why we need the armor of God. As the Apostle Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. And we would be foolish to neglect this reality of our spiritual warfare, which is why Christ regularly speaks of Satan's involvement against us in these letters. Well, now we come to the 14th observation, that our confidence is in Christ and his ruling and reigning over this world from heaven. Where is our confidence found? in Christ as he is ruling and reigning from heaven. Earlier we heard of how John began this book in chapter 1, verse 5. We read, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then John receives an opening vision of Christ in his resurrection glory as he rules and reigns from heaven over this world. And it's then from this opening vision that Christ describes himself at the beginning of each of the seven letters. So it's this Christ who is the one who gives them confidence to live faithfully in this world. As he says in his final letter, Revelation 3, verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, it is through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven that Christ now has sat down with his father on his heavenly throne. And he rules over this world until he returns. Which means that everything that's happening to these churches and in these churches is under the sovereign reign of Christ. Nothing takes him by surprise. And nothing is outside of his control. So we can trust in him and rely on him no matter what happens to us in this world. 
which then leads us to the 15th observation. Yes, I've made it through to the last one. That our hope is in Christ in our future with Him, not in this world. Oh, how we need to hear this today. That our hope is in Christ and our future with Him, not in this world. See, when you hear the promises at the end of each letter, what do they all have in common? But they are all future blessings that we look forward to in Christ. Through these letters and their promises, he says, I will give. You shall not be hurt. I will give. I will give. I will give. I will give. I will not blot out. I will confess. I will make him. I will write on him. I will write on him. I will grant. And these are all future tense. So we live by faith waiting for this sure hope when Christ returns. Which is why our hope is misplaced if it is found in the White House or through politics. Our hope is misplaced if it is found in somehow improving society or transforming culture. It means our hope is misplaced if it is found in the things of this world. Because our hope is not found in this age, our hope is found in the age to come. And when Christ gives us spiritual life through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we then belong to an outpost of His coming kingdom in this church. As we wait and yearn for Christ to come, so we will finally and fully enjoy eternal life in His presence. This is where our hope is found. Not in this world, but in the world to come. After having mined then these letters for these observations, can you see how rich and nourishing Christ's words are to our soul? Brothers and sisters, Christ's letters reveal to us how to overcome the sinful world. We live as those whose hope is found in our overcoming the sinful world so that we will enjoy our future with Christ. So we will overcome as we live through Christ's love, as we live with Christ's church, and as we live for Christ's glory. Because listen again to Jesus' words. You can look at them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. There in the middle of this verse, what does Jesus say to all the churches? He says there, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. We will hide nothing from Christ. And yet Christ in his love reveals to us all we need to know in order to overcome. As we live through his love, 
as we live with his church and as we live for his glory. May we then live by these letters because they continue to speak to us today. That's why Christ has collected them together in this book so that we will overcome the sinful world. Let us then overcome the sinful world by following Christ's word for us through these letters. Because it's through these letters we have confidence and we have hope. Let us pray. Oh, Father, even through all of these observations, we've barely begun to mine the richness of your words to us through these letters. Father, may this be more than a sermon series where we consider and study your letters. But may we indeed see through them how we will overcome this sinful world through Christ. Father, may we be those who live lives of faith and repentance by turning to Christ and turning away from sin. And may you be with us to continue to reflect upon these letters through our lives and to find in them the encouragement we need to continue living through our struggles and suffering in life. May Christ then reign supreme as we rejoice in him, Father. And so we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.